Hey, crime junkies. Welcome to Human Wreckage, the show that covers all murder cases solved and unsolved across the U.S. I'm Madison. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the case that went from one murderer to two murderers in the case of the Hillside Stranglers. We will review the ins and outs of the events that occurred on these serial killers' journeys, as well as discussing what led to the discovery and capture of not one, but two murderers. Be sure to listen closely for all the details and hear about a sneak peek into my next episode. Jumping straight into the story this week, starting in October 1977, Hillside Stranglers murdered 10 women and dumped their bodies in the hills surrounding Los Angeles. The Hillside Stranglers were later identified as cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr. In late 1978, within just 30 days, the Hillside Stranglers left the bodies of five young women and girls in the hills surrounding Los Angeles. By the end of their horrifying killing streak, they had raped, tortured, and murdered 10 victims in total between the ages of 12 and 28. When authorities and the community discovered this was the work of not one predator, but two disturbing predators, they were horrified, to say the least. Before the massacre abruptly stopped in February 1978, a nine-year-old boy found two of the Hillside Strangler's victims while on an adventure with friends searching for buried treasure in local dumps. The boy later told police that they looked like mannequins from a distance, hence why he was willing to climb up over the gross mattresses and get close. Close enough to see that they really were two little girls, 12 and 14, not much older than he was, stripped naked and left to rot. They'd been rotting there in the trash and heat for a week already. Their faces had already started to decay and swarms of insects were crawling all over them. Later, these two girls were identified as Dolly, Cepeda, and Sonia Johnson, but they wouldn't be the last victims. Another body was found before the sun went down that night. Untraditionally, running a little backwards today, let's discuss a little backstory. The massacre of these young women and girls did not start until cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Buono first got together in January 1976. Bianchi, who would later be found responsible for several murders on his own, moved from Rochester, New York, to live with Buono in Los Angeles. In most cases, murderers come from a troubled past. Same case for Bianchi. His mother was unstable and unable to care for him, which led to him being adopted. He himself was unstable both as a child and as an adult, which led to him having difficulty holding down steady work. But living with his cousin, he landed on a money-making scheme that would grow into a murdering spree. Angelo, the older of the two, was believed to have acted as a role model for Kenneth, giving him the ability to sway him. Angelo was raised by his mother due to being a child of divorced parents. Although he was raised by his mother alone, he seemed to loathe women from an early age, reporting that he was married several times and proved to be an abusive husband on many accounts. Due to his subsequent loathing towards women, Angelo came up with this ingenious idea that would later become a murder spree. They would become pimps, bring in teenage runaways no one would miss, and force them to turn tricks. Smart, right? Gross. The Hillside Stranglers start their spree off by taking two teenage girls named Sabra Hanan and Becky Spears. Once the girls were in Angelo's home, they locked them up and forced them to sell their bodies. They were brutal. They beat the girls, pimped them, raped them, and beat them when they tried to resist. The girls were locked in the room and only were allowed to leave when they begged for permission. Eventually, Sabra was able to enlist the help of a lawyer named David Wood. Years later, when the men who tortured her were put on trial for murder, she would tell a jury her story. 
stating, I was tired of getting beat up, tired of all the threats, and tired of engaging in prostitution. Both Sabra and Becky made successful escapes. Sabra and Becky got lucky that they got away. Not long after their escape, Angelo and Kenneth's violent tendencies only got worse. Their first murder came shortly after Sabra and Becky's escape, as per usual with these types of cases and predators. Angelo and Kenneth were determined to keep their pimping business alive. They paid a prostitute named Deborah Noble for a trick list with names and numbers of customers in LA. Deborah showed up with another prostitute, Yolanda Washington, and sold them a fake list. When the cousins realized this, they wanted revenge. Unfortunately for Yolanda, she had told them where she worked often, and they knew where to find her. Yolanda's body was found naked on a hillside near the Ventura Freeway on October 18, 1977. She was tied up with fabric around her neck, wrists, and legs and was pinned down. She was violently raped and her body was washed clean to remove any evidence and left naked on the hill. Ronald Lemieux, a music store owner, was the last person to see her alive, later testifying that he witnessed two men flashing police badges, pulled her off the street, handcuffed her, and pushed her into the backseat of an unmarked car. This would become their trademark signature for most of their murders, pretending to be cops, flashing fake badges, and telling women they were going downtown, only to take them to Angelo's upholstery shop and make sure that they were never seen again. Less than two weeks later, the Hillside Strangler struck again, killing a 15-year-old runaway who'd been surviving by selling her body on the streets, someone they were sure wouldn't be missed. Her body turned up on November 1st, 1977 in a residential area of La Crescenta. A waitress named Lisa Caston turned up next, five days later, the first woman who wasn't a prostitute. On November 20th, 1977, the bodies of Dolly Capeta, Sonia Johnson, and Christina Reckler all turned up on the same day. During investigations, they found the death of Reckler especially troubling. They found the Hillside Stranglers had been experimenting with injecting her with household surface cleaners. Women in L.A. were living in fear. Kimberly Martin joined a call girl agency, hoping they would keep her safe. Instead, the agency got a call from two men on a payphone and sent her to her death. Her body was found on December 4, 1977, found nude, strangled, and with electrical burns on her palms. At only 18 years old, she would become their ninth victim. For a little more than two months, there would be some peace before the killers would strike again for their 10th and final time, leaving behind the body of a woman named Cindy Headspin in the trunk of her Datsun only inches from a cliff. Then, suddenly, in February 1978, the murders stopped. In February 1978, as the killing spree came to a close, Kenneth had decided to leave L.A., he had fallen in love with a woman and spent most of his time in L.A. chasing her. After an attempt to win the hand of Kelly Boyd in marriage, he followed her when she chose to leave town. Kelly never did agree to marrying him, although that didn't stop her from giving him a son. Just days after the Hillside Stranglers struck for the tenth and final time, Kelly gave birth to her and Kenneth's son, Ryan. In weeks following the birth of her son, Kelly broke things off with Kenneth and moved to Washington State. In 1978, Kenneth decided to follow Kelly and move to Bellingham, Washington. But something inside Kenneth just wasn't quite complete. The murderous rage he felt was undeniable. On January 12, 1978, Kenneth kidnapped and murdered two young women, 
students at Western Washington University. Now, Kenneth was never the mastermind behind the Hillside Stranglers' duo murders. Remember, he saw Angelo as a role model and followed his lead. Because Angelo wasn't there to help him with these murders, he was a bit careless about covering up his tracks, so the police caught him the next day. When police pulled Kenneth in for questioning and started reviewing the evidence of the murders, they realized the way that he killed these women in Washington was the same way the women in L.A. were killed. They discovered he was still carrying a California's driver's license as well. This led them to quickly realize that Kenneth was one half of the Hillside Stranglers. The police threatened him with capital punishment, and he eventually broke down and gave up his partner, his cousin, Angelo Buono. Despite being caught red-handed, Kenneth tried to plead insanity during his trial, claiming he had multiple personality disorder, but the court didn't buy it. Kenneth ended up pleading guilty to the Washington murders and at least five of the California murders. He also testified against his cousin, Angelo, only to avoid the death penalty. Kenneth received six life sentences, whereas his cousin, Angelo, only received life without parole. Angelo died in prison in 2002. Kenneth is still living out his sentence after marrying a pen pal in September of 1998. In 2010, he requested parole, but thankfully his request was denied. Now, let's recap the story. The Hillside Stranglers kidnapped, raped, and murdered a total of 10 women together. But there were more bodies on the individuals themselves when they had parted ways. These two predators just so happened to be cousins. Knowing that Kenneth had a son, I truly hope that murderous tendencies are not genetic traits and that he had no part in raising his son to ensure that he didn't instill ill tendencies. Not only was Kenneth naive enough to fall under the wing of his cousin Angelo and follow his footsteps, but when he had the opportunity to cut ties and move on without being caught, he moved to a new state and continued the murders in the exact same manner, leaving behind his signature pattern and leading to his capture. His decision to murder in a new state without the aid of his mentor, Angelo, allowed him to make mistakes. He was immediately caught for the murdering the women in Washington, and due to his mistakes, he was very quickly discovered to have committed several other murders in a whole other state. Kenneth's choices to move but continue the murder spree led to the discovery of him and his cousin, as he so graciously gave him up to avoid the death penalty. I hope all of his requests for parole continue to get denied, and he dies imprisoned alongside his cousin, Angelo. Thanks for joining me on this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening in on my stories, and I hope you'll return for my next episode where we will dive into more solved and unsolved murder cases across the U.S. like Shonda Scherer. Oh.